0: Hello, my name is Kevin Fernando. I'm a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and also Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcast will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. I've been recently involved in planning a series of webcasts for healthcare professionals in the UK, which are all taking place during May 2021 as part of what we're calling Chronic Conditions Month. The webcasts, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to help all of us working in primary care with the significant challenges we've faced in diagnosing and managing chronic conditions over the past year in the midst of the COVID pandemic. Healthcare professionals in UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chronicconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining us. And to accompany the, these webcasts, the Chronic Conditions Faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which we provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the six of these special episodes now. This one features myself and Dr. Yasser Javed.
1: Hello, I'm Yasser Javed. I'm a GP with a specialist interest in cardiology based in Northampton. And it's a huge pleasure for me to be joined today by my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Kevin Fernando, a GP with a specialist interest in diabetes at North Berwick Health Centre, which is near Edinburgh. So welcome to our new podcast, which comes to you as an introduction to Chronic Conditions Month 2021 uh, to be held throughout May. This will include a whole string of interactive and informative webcasts designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions at a time when COVID-19 has thrown out the rulebook. Today in this podcast, we're going to be discussing the importance of testing for a chronic kidney disease and in particular looking at the ACR and EGFR measurements and their relevance perhaps in terms of cardiovascular risk. Kevin, uh, this is such an important issue for us in, in primary care, renal function um, and in particular chronic kidney disease. Uh, any specific guidelines that we uh, can use in primary care to help us firstly to classify CKD and also to predict the risk of adverse outcomes?
0: Yeah, good, good, good question. Yeah, so we, we we need guidance, don't we, in primary care but to, to help uh, optimize outcomes for our patients living with CKD. But you know what it's like in primary care? We're inundated with guidelines, uh, aren't we? But actually, we have two fairly pragmatic guidelines uh, very relevant to uh, people living with CKD. First one slightly older, the Nice CKD guidance published originally in 2014, but actually just closed to consultation for the updated version. So hopefully we should have an updated Nice CKD guideline perhaps later later this year. Uh, so that that very uh, eloquently in a couple of charts summarizes the different stages of CKD, stages G1 to G5, and also the stages of ACR category as well, A1 to A3, depending on the amount of, of, of protein in the urine. And it pr- produces a useful heat map to, to tell us that the risk of that individual developing adverse consequences... Largely, as I'm sure we'll be talking about cardiovascular disease, and also usefully suggests a number of times we may want to check EGFR and ACR for that individual person. So that's largely the guidelines I've been using for my patients living with CKD. But actually, hot off the press, just published towards the end of 2020, uh, December 2020, we had updated KDIGO guidelines, uh, specifically actually looking at the management of diabetes and coexisting CKD. Um, and again, uh, very much used this similar sort of heat map approach, traffic light approach, uh, very pragmatic, uh, very user friendly. So uh, I would suggest these are the two best guidelines for us to follow in in primary care. Both are accessible uh, o- online at the nice website, the KDIGO website, with some useful downloads to help us classify people living with CKD.
1: So it sounds like very sort of helpful, practical uh, guidelines that we can implement into our routine. Uh, clinical practice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because it's very important, isn't it, that we uh, uh, we identify those individuals with uh, declining EGFR and escalating urinary ACR. Certainly from your cardiovascular background, I'm sure you're very aware of the the implications of uh, declining uh, EGFR and escalating ACR. But I, I thought it might be useful just to expand a wee bit on the, on that discussion and really to highlight the
1: importance of identifying these individuals early on. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, firstly, let's be uh, let's let's be absolutely clear. Uh, CKD is uh, a leading risk factor for adverse outcomes, and and actually, quite recently, we've realised how much of a of an independent risk factor it is for uh, cardiovascular disease. In in fact, uh, you mentioned uh, diabetic kidney disease. We know diabetic kidney disease is the leading cause uh, in the UK of end-stage renal disease and going on to dialysis. But sadly. Many of these patients with diabetic kidney disease don't even make it to dialysis because of their very high cardiovascular risk and they very often succumb uh, to cardiovascular disease. And talking about those two components, I think it's important to understand that they're really giving us different information uh, about the kidney. I mean, the EGFR is really a a functional uh, status uh, of the kidney. You know, what is the filtration capacity of, of, of the kidney? Whereas the ACR is really telling us about the internal structural damage, giving us an insight uh, of, you know, what's going on inside the glomerulus, how leaky has it become uh, to proteins. And they are very different. And in fact, you can get, you know, a normal EGFR, perhaps we'll discuss this a bit later on, but uh, an elevated uh, ACR. So it's really important we look at both because they they are additive in terms of um, how we should risk stratify uh, patients with CKD and certainly additive in terms of their uh, risk of adverse outcomes, particularly uh, cardiovascular outcomes.
0: Uh, absolutely, I think that's such an important point, isn't it? That, that, that the effects are additive, but they're independent though as well, aren't they? They're independent predictors. That like declining eGFR and uh, uh, rising urinary ACR. So that's why you know it's a key, uh, for example, checking urinary ACR was a key part of QUOF, wasn't it in the past. And that was a major concern of mine, you know, as you're probably aware. Well, we lost QOF, of course, in Scotland about three or four years ago now. Uh, but uh, uh, the, the, the routine checking of urinary ACR, particularly for people living with diabetes, was removed from QOF, wasn't it, uh, yes. So what, what, what's been the impact of that removal of that index from QOF um, from and what are the implications of this in, in the
1: longer term? Well, sadly, but uh, not unsurprisingly, it has uh, led to a a significant reduction in ACR uh, testing, certainly in England, uh, looking at at the data. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of uh, variation, but overall, the rates are significantly reduced, um, which is a shame, really, because, um, you know, for people living with diabetes in particular, I mean, often that's the first thing that gets elevated in the trajectory of diabetic kidney disease early on in diabetes uh, when it starts to damage the kidney you get hyperfiltration which actually increases the leakiness of the uh, kidney to protein and and just missing out on that ACR at that stage will mean that when you know we're not going to be proactive at identifying and therefore addressing uh, that decline that inevitable decline in in renal function uh, and it's it is a shame because there's so many more strategies that I'm sure we're going to talk about a bit later on that we can adopt to really try and uh, reduce that decline. But clearly, if you're not identifying it at its earliest stage, that initial trigger is that raised ACR often, um, and I think we are missing out on that in many patients. And of course, this has been magnified in the you know current climate that we're living in, where where many of our reviews uh, are now being done virtually. I um, mean what's your experience uh, Kevin in Scotland something similar uh, 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 absolutely. Time.
0: As I said, we lost co a number of years ago. So after that happened, there was, again, inevitably, there was a drop in, in, in unary uh, ACR checking. And then, as you said, sadly, with the pandemic, this has been wor- worsened again. So uh, I know it's something that we do need to, to maintain as a clinical priority for peeping, people living with diabetes, but also people say living with hypertension as well, because of course, hypertensive uh, hypertension is is a, is a common cause of CKD as well, isn't it? So- so uh, th- this, this is something we do definitely need to, to maintain
1: as a clinical priority. So, Kevin, um, you mentioned those fantastic guidelines that we have. What do they tell us about how often we should be checking EGFR and urinary ACR in someone with established chronic kidney disease? Absolutely. I'd very much encourage our listeners today to, to download either
0: the NICE or the kdigo guidance, uh, that heat map, uh, those heat map algorithms, which g- gives us a clear steer, some suggestions on, of course, how to classify CKD, but perhaps how often we should be checking ACR and also EGFR. So for example, a typical patient with, say, CKD stage G3A, so that's an EGFR between 45 and 59, and, say, stage A2 of ACR. So that is uh, uh, albuminuria between 3 and 30 milligrams per millimole. Actually, just one check a year would be adequate, okay? Of course, we need to individualize these uh, recommendations. However, someone with most significant renal dysfunction, stage G4, so an EGFR between 15 and 30, and maybe uh, stage A3 in terms of ACR, so that's over 30 milligrams per millimole, will uh, recommendations from NICE, from Kate Igo, would be suggesting uh, checking that individual at least three times a year uh, for for both, uh, well for, for for EGFR and and certainly for to quantify our, 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 any albuminuria as well. So of course these are just uh, suggestions; they can be very much individualised to that person in in front of us. And of course there are some situations, of course, in in more uh, you know more functional dependence and frailty, where we'd be taking our foot right off the pedal, wouldn't we, and be taking a more pragmatic approach in our more frail, more elderly individuals.
1: I think they're really helpful because probably in in some instances, they're going to hopefully guide us not to check the uh, renal function too frequently, but in those patients where the risk is so much higher, particularly risk of deterioration, perhaps just telling us, giving us that pointer that we should be keeping a closer eye uh, on that trend. And you talked about uh, frailty uh, any uh, sort of particular nuggets that you can give us about uh, CKD in older and frailer patients? Uh, does the ev- I mean the evidence does suggest that the majority of older people with CKD do not progress to end-stage renal disease? So what 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 does that tell us about how we should be managing? Uh, really I, I think content. this is a very interesting uh, is- issue and very much consistent with our realistic med-
0: medicine agenda in Scotland, I don't know, you know, relative, re- relevant to wherever we work in the UK. There was a really good paper that, uh, published in a BMJ uh, around about 2016, I think, and it, it was entitled CKD in elderly people. Uh, is this a disease or a disease label? And, and really what it says is, uh, as you outlined yourself, really around half of people over the age of 75 uh, currently meet diagnostic criteria for CKD. But actually the vast majority of these older people uh, have CKD that does not progress to end stage renal disease, you know, requiring dialysis or renal transplantation. And actually, when you look at the data we've been briefly talking about associating cardiovascular risk with CKD, that data isn't actually age-specific and really is mostly relevant to people with most significant lower levels of EGFR, so certainly below an EGFR of 30, for example. So actually, very interestingly, the authors of that paper argue that CKD stage G3a is perhaps not significant in older people. And maybe uh, we should lo- uh, we should lower the threshold to an eGFR of forty five from an eGFR of sixty um, to diagnose CKD stage G three a. So I thought it was very pragmatic, very holistic, and as you said yourself, to try and avoid over treatment, over medicalization of CKD, which is actually part of the ageing process, isn't it? Yes. So I, really, what I always um, uh, sort of discuss with my colleagues probably a more useful question to ask ourselves uh, in terms of how um, uh, aggressively, if you like, we want to manage that CKD. Is that person in front of us likely to require renal replacement therapy within their lifetime? And of course, if the answer is yes, it is someone we're going to be phoning a friend, isn't it? Referring to renal uh, or maybe starting some of these newer therapies we'll be talking about just shortly. But clearly, if you sadly feel that person in front of you is unlikely to require either dialysis or transplantation or not fit enough to do that, of course, we can take our foot off the pedal and take a more pragmatic approach. So I thought it was a really interesting paper and very relevant with our our aging population uh, to to try and uh, not over medicalize CKD. Yeah.
1: yeah, well, thanks, Kevin. I mean, clearly we're we're practicing in a much older and frailer population than than we used to. So perhaps um I guess what you're trying to say there is maybe even accept sort of milder degrees of renal dysfunction as part of the normal aging process absolutely, um, yeah. and not to over-medicalize. So I just wanted to talk a wee bit uh, about EGFR itself.
0: Uh, yeah, so that's a, a common, common abnormal blood test we find, isn't it, in our DocMan inboxes. Uh, so I wanted to talk uh, about perhaps some of the pitfalls and cautions when interpreting uh, abnormal or even normal EGFR values because as the name suggests, it's an estimated glomerular filtration rate, isn't it?
1: Uh, so error is possible. Do you want to maybe expand a wee bit on that, Yasser? Oh, absolutely. I think the key is that it is only an estimation. I mean, it's a pretty crude uh, estimate of uh, renal function. Um, I think for me, the trend is probably more important than the absolute number. And uh, that's where I see the great role of EGFR. It's really good at looking at the trend in renal function in an individual patient. But for absolute... uh, estimation of, of of renal function for instance for certain drugs that are really uh reliant on uh you know renal pharmacokinetics then certainly in cardiology we very much use uh the cockcroft galt uh clearance which is still an estimation but it does factor in uh things like the weight uh, and certainly for me weight should be factored in because i mean if you've got an elderly frail patient with low muscle mass your EGFR is going to be fairly inaccurate uh, as, a, as an absolute measurement of renal function. You're going to be overestimating the renal function. So for drugs like the DOAX, for instance, it's now standard practice uh, to use uh, Cockroft-Gold-Cratin clearance uh, calculations for the dosing. I'm, I'm not sure what your experience is on that in terms of dose, uh, dosing drugs uh, used in diabetes, Kevin. I mean, in cardiology, we very much move towards that. Yeah. No I completely agree with you. for our high risk
0: medications, we should be using uh, creatinine clearance. Uh, EGFR is really di- uh, d- uh, e- EGFR was really to be used only for the diagnosis and staging of CKD. But yeah, ideally for ideally for dosing of all drugs, actually we should be using creatinine clearance, but we've got to be pragmatic as well, don't we, in primary care. Uh, but absolutely high risk drugs, the doax as you mentioned, things like lithium as well. Certain high-risk antibiotics like gentamicin, etc. So, I absolutely, agree with you. Um, and and there can be, especially at those lower eGFRs, it can be quite a discrepancy, can't there? But as you said, between the the GFR and and also the um, the, the creatinine clearance. Yeah, for me, it's also, ri- sorry, oh,
1: for, uh, sorry, for me, it's that older uh, sort of patient with lower muscle mass. Uh, I've seen eGFRs that are almost double the sort of cockcroft gulp crafting clearance. Uh, calculated and and Kevin do you might do you also agree with me that really it's it's the trend in renal function that's almost as perhaps even more important than the actual uh, static uh, renal function that you've got in front of you Absolutely. And I think that's the same for several blood
0: tests, isn't it? What is more helpful is the trend, the direction of travel to help uh, guide your management. Uh, The analogy is the HbA1c. So actually in CKD, very uh, appropriate, we're talking about that just now. Uh, HbA1c is not so accurate in uh, CKD either because of underlying anemia associated with CKD, increased red cell turnover, uh, other reasons like that. So, uh, so actually, what's more helpful in CKD is just looking at that trend of HB1C. So, I absolutely agree with you. Again, I think that's a very pragmatic approach, and you know, ultimately, in in primary care, we are pra- pragmatists, aren't we? Um, uh, and I think that's one of our one of our key
1: strengths. But- Kevin, on on a very practical level, most uh, GP software systems, certainly the ones we have uh, in England, and have have these uh, Cockcroft-Gault uh cracking clearance calculators embedded within them or you can they're very easy uh, easily available online as well so it's really not a a, a major undertaking to, to to sort of go that extra mile and, and get that more accurate estimation uh for most patients i mean do you have similar um integration with with your software systems in in Scotland uh, absolutely, we
0: use Vision in in North Berwick, and it's integrated into Vision. But I, I use a lot of sm- uh, smart apps as well on my phone. There's a number I have no conflicts of interest here, but MedCalx, I find a very useful app. Um, I'm sure you've used it as well, but not just for creatinine clearance. It, you know, you, there's questionnaires such as the Epworth Sleepiness Score. Uh, you know, simply calculating BMI, a lot of helpful calculators. So yeah, they can be very helpful yeah.
1: too. I will totally endorse that medcalc it comes in handy on uh, on more than one occasion usually uh, in in a busy morning. Uh, Kevin we've so we've we've talked about the pitfalls of interpreting the EGFR what about the ACR isn't that a more straightforward uh, thing to interpret or are there any pitfalls or cautions that we need to consider?
0: Yeah yeah you would think it was hopefully more straightforward but there's a couple of uh, potential pitfalls anyway we need to 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 be aware of. I suppose, not really a pitfall, but the first thorny issue is this issue of do we need an early morning urine sample? You know That's traditionally what we've always asked for. And the reason for that is because one cause of transient protein in the urine is what we call orthostatic proteinuria. So once you've been upright for a few hours or longer, that can lead to a slight uh, benign leakage of protein into the urine. So that's why traditionally we've always said Get an early morning sample of urine because we've been recumbent. Hopefully overnight, um, so there should be minimal impact of uh, you know orthostatic proteinuria. But actually, speaking to our renal colleagues, uh, the the amount of leakage of protein due to this orthostatic effect is negligible. It's not clinically meaningful. And really, the clear message from our renal colleagues is any urine is better than no urine. <laughs> so uh, don't worry about getting that early morning urine sample. Just get a sample at any time of the day. And actually, if it's handed in late in the day after the lab van has been, it can be stored overnight in, in, a, in, in a fridge in just a white-topped container. Um, so, and, and what we're looking for when we send that uh, away is a value of over three milligrams per millimole. That is clinically important proteinuria. That said... Aside from orthostatic proteinuria, there are are some other causes of transient albuminuria too. So that's why, very importantly, we need two positive samples over three months. So what are the causes? Well, uh, biological variability. You just get a natural, you know, like with many many tests. Uh, Recent heavy exercise can also cause uh, some protein in the urine. Urinary tract infections, of course. But indeed any febrile illness apparently can lead to, you know, proteinuria or albuminuria. From your department, decompensated heart failure can lead to significant albuminuria, can't it? yes yeah, sir menstruation in women, acute fluid shifts as well. Um, and any actually, in, in terms of people living with diabetes, or actually even without diabetes, any acute changes in blood sugar levels or blood pressure can also cause albuminuria. So as you can see, like the EGFR, it's not a perfect test. And there there are other clinical scenarios we should be aware of that may potentially be a cause of transient albuminuria, which once again is why it's important we take two... We, we, we only diagnose uh, uh, di- diagnose uh, clinically important proteinuria if we have two positive samples over three months.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an important point. So I think in conclusion, ACR is a very sensitive test, but it's not directly specific or 100% specific for structural uh, damage to the kidney. And you mentioned this three months apart. Do you recommend that we do uh, repeat it at three months or any time within that Within that three months, are there any any guidance on Again, that? Again, I think we can be fairly pragmatic. Also, given the pressures we're under with the pandemic uh, and
0: you know re- reduce patient contacts, uh, I think the key thing as we started this conversation is we don't want to miss true albuminuria because if it's uh, as we discussed, potential impact on adverse renal and cardiovascular outcomes. So I think it'd be reasonable to check it. You know, even after a month, you know, month to to six weeks, uh, if you have that window of opportunity, absolutely. So, yes, I'm I'm conscious of time. Uh, it's been really interesting chatting about this. Uh, I thought perhaps a nice way to finish up our discussion th- today would be to talk about some of the exciting new therapies uh, in the pipeline, or indeed not even in the pipeline, available to us now to potentially prevent uh, that decline in EGFR, that progression of CKD, but also to reduce that proteinuria as well. So for for decades, our renal colleagues, we in primary care, are, are well versed at using ACE inhibitors or ARBs, aren't aren't we? If we see that clinically significant proteinuria over three milligrams per millimole, we would offer, wouldn't we, an uh, an ACE inhibitor or an ARB if not tolerated? But actually. The SGLT two inhibitors now have a, a pivotal role to play in reducing progression of kidney disease. It's
1: an exciting time, isn't it? Yasser? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the renal uh, specialists must be particularly excited because they have <laughs> yeah. had, let's face it, very little in their arsenal to try and combat uh, this issue. But even aside from therapies, I think you know, just making sure that we tell our patients to you know enjoy healthy uh, lifestyle, you know, regular exercise. But also very importantly, from an early stage, think about um, you know trying to switch therapies that that could be actually damaging the kidney, and in particular, you know things like anti-inflammatory medication that can be strongly associated with worsening uh, renal dysfunction. But yeah, totally agree with you. I mean, the ACE inhibitors for me have been the you know the standard of care for renal protection for so long. They reduce that glomerular pressure. So you do get a slight reduction in EGFR, but that's really not a bad thing because that you know, reduction in glomerular pressure really does help with that renal protection. And then more recently, we've got uh, really good evidence. I mean, some of the evidence is quite spectacular, actually, in terms of how the SGLT2 inhibitors also by a different mechanism reduce that glomerular pressure. Again, just accept a slight reduction in eGFR. In fact, you don't even need to check the renal function after you've started an SGLT2 inhibitor. But they're showing incremental benefit on top of ACE inhibitors in terms of uh, renal protection uh, in patients with diabetes. And uh, m- more recently, we've now we're now getting evidence even in patients uh, without diabetes. So for me, very exciting. And we're hoping that um, one or more of these will be. Uh, licensed uh, for that specific use, uh, even in patients without diabetes uh, in the future. So very exciting. And I guess we've just got to watch that space.
0: Absolutely. That, you know, that updated KDAIGO guideline I mentioned to you earlier on in terms of classifying it, it also places SGLT2 inhibitors as a new pillar of, of the management of CKD. So uh, well worth, as I said, having a look at that guideline bang up to date, just published December 2020 and, and includes the pivotal role of SGLT2 inhibitors. But uh, as you said, very much alongside important lifestyle measures too.
1: I also just want to end by making the, I think, really important point that we've almost got to change our mindset with CKD. Uh, in the past, we're very reactive. You know, we almost you have to wait for the kidney function to be really bad, EGFR low, you know, perhaps not even looking at the ACR. Let's try and be really proactive. Let's not just look at the EGFR. Let's look at the ACR on a regular basis. As soon, Especially in a patient with risk factors, you know, diabetes, hypertension, coexisting cardiovascular disease and the moment we see uh, any uh, sign of uh, early deterioration we sh- we should be now deploying uh, a broad and fairly aggressive strategy early on to try and you know alter that uh, trajectory and there's so much more we can do now isn't there Kevin uh, than ever before
0: uh, absolutely. We've got a number of tools in our toolbox. The analogy, again, with your background is heart failure, isn't it? A number of new tools in our toolbox to, to pharmacologically uh, tackle uh, heart failure. Similar situation with CKD. So I think a key role for us is to raise awareness of these new tools and to, to, to ensure, ensure we prescribe them in an effective way, but as you alluded to as well, in a safe manner as well to ensure that that uh, risk-benefit ratio remains positive.
1: Fantastic, Kevin. I really enjoyed that uh, discussion. Thank you all for listening. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Please make sure to register both for the other podcasts in the series and for our interactive webcasts brought to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2021. You can sign up at chronicconditions.co.uk.